0: Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring.
1: Hey, friends. Welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zelmer, director of KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, and
2: I'm here with Katie Miller.
3: Hey, everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan.
1: And Kevin Maynard.
2: Kevin Maynard, executive director of Quad City Arts in Rock Island, Illinois. Danielle Van Hook. Hey,
0: it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean, Virginia.
2: And Josh Benson.
4: Josh Benson, rocking it out in Marion, Illinois from the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. So this week, I speak with Leah Keith from Rhythm
1: of the Arts. And before we get into that conversation, I have a question for you guys. In your first leadership role, whatever that might have been in this industry, not in this industry, but you were the leader, did you have a problem asking questions? And I ask that because I was thinking about that. When I was a brand new leader my running my first performing arts center, I was pretty much by myself. And I felt I was pretty young and I felt pressure that I'm supposed to know everything. And I didn't want people to not see me or respect me in a certain way because I would ask certain questions about things. And so I I found myself trying to figure things out on my own, which looking back, I wish that I did ask the questions and that there wouldn't have been a problem with that. But it just made me think about my experience. And so I'm just curious how how it was for you.
2: I actually had little issue asking questions and admitting that I didn't know things, but it was for sort of different reasons. Like I had a really great mentor that I could reach out to and, and talk to him about these things. Um, and then also just like connections in the industry. So I wasn't asking anybody locally, like questions and things like that. So I could, you know, be that, you know, young professional who, you know, sort of on the outside looked like I knew everything. But in reality, I was making phone calls to trying to make myself not look like an idiot in the public. So <laughs> I was a terrible leader at
4: first because I was headstrong and arrogant and overconfident and felt like asking questions and and admitting that I didn't know something was a weakness, which is just stupid. Um, And it took me a long time to grow into a leader that was confident enough to say, I don't know, let me find out, or I don't know, what do you think? Or just to gather thoughts from the team before making a decision and, and to really lean into a, a team style leadership as opposed to a dictatorship?
3: That's a interesting question, Brian. I'm thinking back actually to my high school days because I think I really started taking on leadership roles in a couple of different areas back in high school. I would say I probably struck a pretty good balance between asking questions and also then trying, like I was saying, trying to like look like you know things. And I think similar to Kevin, like I had adults that were mentors or leading those efforts. So like, for instance, I was, Uh, the chair of a youth philanthropy board through my local area community foundation. And Gina, who was the staff member that, that ran that program, like she was right there by my side the whole time, like guiding me as president of that board and, and laying the foundation for that. So I hopefully, at least I hope in my recollection, had a pretty good balance between being like, I have no idea what I'm doing because I'm 16 and also having like a weird self-confidence that like I could take that on at that age and lead my peers um, in that way.
0: Yeah, Brian, I'm thinking back to my first job, like post-graduation, and I from what I remember, I think I felt kind of similarly to you. Um, I graduated from college in 2009, which was um, what I guess people refer to as the Great Recession. There were a lot of new graduates and not a lot of jobs, especially in the arts. I was so lucky uh, to, to kind of get a job right out of that and I, I felt so blessed and I was so afraid to screw up because I knew what an incredible opportunity I had. So I just felt like I, I had, like you said, I had to know everything. You couldn't have those moments where you were like still trying to learn. And I absolutely could have like hindsight looking back on it. But at the time I just felt so much pressure to be perfect.
1: Thank you, friends. I appreciate your honest answers. And Uh, I I really found what Leah had to say about this interesting too, and I hope you do as well. So let's get into the interview with Leah Keith.
5: Hello, my name is Leah Keith. I am a co-founder of Rhythm of the Arts, as well as creative producer and agent. We are an agency located in Rosendale, New York, about an hour and a half north of the city and our mission is to connect presenters with visceral performing arts experiences that audiences crave.
1: Hi, Lee. It's so great to have you with us today.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: You mentioned creative producer and agent. Can you just kind of tell us, it might be nuanced, but maybe for our audience to kind of describe what that is?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So a big part of what we do at Rhythm of the Arts, in addition to representing artists that might have produced their own projects, produced their own shows, is we also act as creative producers. So what that means is we create the concept of the show and then see it through from conception to stage and everything in between. So for example, two of the shows that are on our roster, Sugar Skull, A Dia de Muertos Musical Adventure is an example of that as well as tablao flamenco.
1: Which I had here recently in Kutztown. (laughs) And that was a great show. Um, I want to get into your roster and talk more about what you're doing now, but I always like to find out your background and your history. Can you just tell us a little bit about the highlights of your career?
5: Absolutely. So um, I'm originally from Denver, Colorado area, and I started in acting as well as in dancing and specifically flamenco dance. So I started uh, flamenco when I was uh, around seven years old and uh, was performing as a dancer concurrently to acting. After my undergrad, where I got my BA in theater, emphasis acting and directing, I went to Spain to live for four years and I was dancing there and uh, subsequently moved to New York City where I said, oh, I'm going to be dancing and acting at the same time, and dancing ended up paying the bills. So I toured as a flamenco dancer for many years with different U.S.-based companies, amongst them Flamenco Vivo Carlota Santana, as well as Danza España, Andrea del Conte. Uh, it is it is challenging, even though I am Latina. Uh, my mother is from Colombia, but I am American, and so to be an American... Um, Focusing on a uh, culturally specific art form is doubly challenging. And there have been many artists who have made it work and who do it um, pretty amazingly, but I uh, needed a little bit more uh, more of a solid foundation in my life. Uh, I wanted to get off the road and um, more stability. So I went back to school and I got my MFA in Performing Arts Management from Brooklyn College. And right after that, became an agent.
1: Can I back up a little bit? Now, you're you're becoming a professional dancer in Spain, and then you moved uh-huh. to New York. Did you have connections to get you started? Because you said you were able to pay the bills that way, but I'm sure you had to get in somehow through the door.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I moved to New York City, I had friends in the city from, um, from undergrad who were actors, musical theater actors. And so I had some people here, and then in the flamenco community, I was just very, um, very direct about it and just found who the companies were that were based here, emailed them, met with them, stalked them as to where they were performing, introduced myself, not really stalking, you know, but, um, but just really put myself out there, and uh, they started calling me for for gigs and uh, you know a lot of work inside the schools as a teaching artist, um, lecture demonstrations all around flamenco, as well as evening gigs. And then that led to um, touring opportunities with these companies. When we
1: met, you were working at a major, I'll call it a corporate, uh, large agency, one of the world's biggest agencies. Was that the agency that you stepped into first or was there something before that?
5: So the first agency that I worked for was also a large agency. It was Opus 3 Artists, and I worked with them for about five years. And then we parted ways, and I spent some time. That was kind of Rhythm of the Arts Part 1. So that was uh, figuring out, because Rhythm of the Arts was founded by my husband as a producing company and an umbrella for his artistic endeavors. And so we that was when we dipped our toes into the first, iter- producing the first iteration of Sugar Skull. And um, that lasted, you know, and going out as Rhythm of the Arts as an agency for Tabla Flamenco. And that lasted maybe six months until I started getting um, tapped by other agencies who were interested in hiring me and bringing me on. And that's when Columbia Artist uh, Hired me. So I was with them for maybe three years until they uh, shut down due to the pandemic in August of twenty twenty.
1: I want to just compare that a second before we get into what you're doing now specifically. I'm sure it's a very different kind of work as an agent working for this big, huge company versus being the co-owner of a of a boutique agency now um, and producing agency. Can you just maybe tell us a little bit about the differences of the type of work that an agent might do in either case?
5: Absolutely. So both uh, the way that Opus three is structured and the way Columbia Artist was structured is very similar. And that's not um, you know, that's not a coincidence. Opus three is made up of a lot of former cami people, agents, managers and the like. So I think that it's natural that when you set up a company, there are obviously going to be similarities in structure. So the biggest difference is that these agencies are so large and represent a number of artists that my role when I began at Opus was as the Northeast booking agent. So they would divide us up into regions so that each each agent could focus on a specific region and uh, really develop uh, you know, strong relationships with the presenters of that region because there was just so much product, so many artists.
1: I was going to ask, do they also break up the, when it's such a huge list of artists on your roster, do they also break up either by genre or just certain types of uh, groupings of artists, or, or how does that work?
5: Yes, more specifically with Opus when I was there, and I believe it continues to this day, they have a separation between like the classical artist bookings as well as what they designate attractions. Um, So, there is that differentiation. And I would say similarly as well, during my time at Columbia Artists, there was also that differentiation between the ground routed touring and, let's say, maybe classical, classical artists.
1: So, if I just understand you correctly, so then essentially in these large agencies, there might be two agents covering the same region.
5: Exactly. Exactly. There might be two agents covering the same region at the same time, but the method behind that is that if you are, let's say, a pretty standard PAC, either out of a university or a municipal PAC, you know, you might have different um, different series within, you know, what you're offering, depending on your budget and depending on how big you are and uh, your mission but there are also presenters who are very specific to like classical music and they might have like a chamber series so or maybe even within an organization there are even different programmers there might be the programmers if it's a large you know performing arts center there might be they might have several programmers in that performing arts centers that might focus on more commercial content more what's designated like fine art and then classical or maybe even like parsed out even further, like, okay, you have the dance program. So on the agency side, when these larger agencies, if they represent people of all of those that could fill all of that, they try to mirror what the Performing Arts Center's counterpart might be, like the buying counterpart, if we get down to like, you know, selling and buying, right?
1: Uh, Somebody that's listening that might consider working for one of these large agencies, maybe wants to become an agent, what should they expect in terms of how they support themselves? Is this a hundred percent commission type job typically? I mean, I'm sure it depends on company by company, but in your experience, how, how does one make a living? Is it just by selling?
5: It really uh, depends on the agency. Uh, both of those agencies were salary based. There were no commissions. Uh, there are other large agencies that are maybe a lower base salary with a little bit of a commission. Let's say you know you're you're an agency and you're a classical agency and you have these um, you know young classical artists like soloists. Well, they're not going to make a lot of money immediately, but as an agency, you're investing in them, and so. You, you want your agents to focus on those bookings as well as like the bookings for the much larger ticket items. With Opus, you think of like, okay, the young artists who might have just won a, a competition, and then you have Yo-Yo Ma on the other end of the spectrum. So you don't want the agents just to focus on the Yo-Yo Ma dates. You need to develop the... Um, the other artists as well.
1: I'm wondering or guessing that it's probably quota-based then, because your job as an agent is to sell. So if you're not getting commissions, then I'm sure there's just a certain number of sales you have to make then.
5: Yes. It's definitely a balance between um, number of contracts and amount of revenue. Gotcha
1: if we If you don't mind, I'd like to get into Rhythm of the Arts a little bit more because, as you mentioned how it started, it's evolved into something new. Maybe bring us up to the current day and uh, talk a little bit about what's on your roster as well as, you know what you do
5: so yeah. So, as I mentioned before, Rhythm of the Arts started out in two thousand and five as a production company, you know, a producing entity for um, Mexico Beyond Mariachi, which is an artistic group, music and dance group, that uh, performs music and dance from regions of Mexico, beyond the stereotype beyond mariachi. And my husband, Peter Bogdanos, is one of the co-founders of this company. So he founded Rhythm of the Arts as an umbrella company for Mexico Beyond Mariachi's um, work, as well as his own artistic work as a percussionist. Um, He's also a flamenco percussionist. Before the pandemic hit, we used Rhythm of the Arts as the producing entity for our family show, Sugar Skull, the other Muertos musical adventure, as well as for Tablao Flamenco, which is a co-production with the Blumenthal Performing Arts. Um, Tom Gabbard had reached out to us specifically because he knew my background as a flamenco dancer and also Peter's background as a percussionist and he wanted us to create a show that more accurately represented what flamenco is in Spain in the club scene. There are a few flamenco companies that go on tour, and they tour more as a ballet company, which is absolutely a valid way to do it. Tom just wanted us to create something more intimate. So we had been doing that. While I was working with Columbia Artists, they also Part of the deal of bringing me on as an agent was that they were going to bring these two projects onto their roster, which we did. Thanks to the amazing booking team at Columbia Artists, we booked an eight-week ground routed tour that hit 30 cities. I'll always be grateful to the team there, um, because now when Columbia Artists shut down in August of 2020, both my husband and I kind of found ourselves in a position, as I'm sure many of us in our, in our industry did. Of okay, what's next? What's now? When Columbia shut down, we were in the midst of producing a virtual version of Sugar Skull that we subsequently, you know, booked, and um, that really kind of helped us float this, you know, pandemic period. And then the Syncopated Ladies, which was another group that I had brought onto the roster at Columbia Artists, they wanted to continue working with me. And I had some other artists reach out to me that were also looking for representation and they didn't mind that we were still in the midst of a pandemic in January of 21. That's when we we said, okay, let's do this. Let's put 110% into what Rhythm of the Arts can be and what we want the agency arm of Rhythm of the Arts to be. That's what we've been focusing on and the type of artist that we've brought onto our roster. 90% of our roster is artists of color, um, Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color. It gives a voice to underrepresented communities, uh, not only, you know, backgrounds and ethnicities, But I also represent a company, Heidi Latsky Dance, that is one of the premier um, integrated dance companies with disabled dancers and non-disabled dancers in the country. I represent Quinteto Latino, which is a wind quintet based out of San Francisco, that their mission is to create spaces for uh, black and brown folks in classical music, specifically Uh, with a focus on Latinx composers. I just signed an artist, a Brazilian uh, singer-songwriter named Luca Mundaca. And then we represent Garba 360, which is uh, more of an interactive uh, project that is appropriate for festivals and it's music, but also uh, teaching of the dance. And of course, you know, the syncopated ladies out of LA, an all-female tap group, all of them from the black diaspora and then tabla flamenco. And I also represent Scrap Arts Music, a percussive group out of Vancouver. So it's quite an eclectic mix of artists. But again, all of them, you know, their focus is about providing a voice for underrepresented people.
1: So you have a lot of uh, international artists included in that roster, which means you have to deal with things like visas and other travel things that are maybe a little bit more complicated than maybe somebody who's just domestic. Can you just explain a little bit how, how that works?
5: I do have to deal a little bit with visas, but even though these artists represent uh, international art forms and are of international backgrounds. It is on purpose that they are based, all based in the U.S., and it is exactly for that reason.
1: How do you go about uh, figuring out the budgets needed for each of these shows and how big the companies need to be? I mean, all these very important artistic, yet also business <laughs> kind of questions.
5: For example, like with Garba 360, I am not the producer for Garba 360. Hina Patel is the producer for Garba 360. So she figures out her expenses, how much does it cost to pay the artists, what are taxes that she might have to pay. You figure out everything. And she has to get paid as the producer and she has to pay Rhythm of the Arts, our percentage. And, you know, maybe she has an assistant, so she has to figure out her overhead. And then we talk about what the market can bear, and that's how we develop what the ask is. When I'm speaking to a presenter and I'm like, okay, this costs X amount, we of course leave room for negotiation because that is the nature of our business, is to negotiate. Sometimes I have more wiggle room than less, and that's when Really, the relationship between the agent and the presenter comes into play because the stronger your relationship is, you know, I'm not trying to get one over on you and I know that you're not trying to get one over on me. But, you know, if you're looking at shows that need to be ground routed, Sugar Skull is a project that needs to be ground routed because we have a rehearsal time beforehand. So we have expenses the cost of travel. The first time we toured Sugar Skull in the first large tour in 2019, they toured in a coach bus. This season, they're touring in a sprinter van and a box truck because the prices for travel for a coach bus went up 40%. And then, of course, prices went up with gas as well. When you're doing a ground routed tour, you amortize those costs over the length of the tour. So, oftentimes there's kind of the sweet spot. It's like, okay, if, if I do it less than two weeks, the tour is not going to make money. But if I go beyond that, that's when it'll make money.
1: Once we have the tour kind of set, and you might see you have a few open days where there's availability for performance, I, I know I've been a benefactor of this too, where you might be able to have special routing prices available too. How does that work? How do you come up with those?
5: Absolutely. So when we're preparing a show like Sugar Skull or like The Syncopated Ladies, and we're figuring out first our costs, right? And putting everything that you could pay for in your budget and your contingency, and maybe your second contingency. And You know, maybe your third contingency, (laughs) and you just put it in there, and you kind of beef it up. So we kind of know, okay, we need this to be at least seven to eight weeks, and we need the artist to be in five cities a week, you know, five engagements a week, and we need the average to be X. So we figure it out with that. It's not so much so fuzzy math, but you you figure it out, like, okay, what does the average fee need to be? So what is your weekly nut? And for a show like Sugar Skull, uh, Sunday Monday is an ideal time because that's when most people do like a Sunday matinee, family matinee, and they want the school show the next day. So that is a prime day, you know, but maybe like the Thursday morning or the Friday morning, not so much. But if you're looking for an evening show like the Syncopated Ladies, of course, the weekends are going to be your, your big money makers. So if you're a presenter that likes to book on Mondays and Tuesdays, you're going to be getting great deals for those evening shows.
1: An important part of being an agent is attending conferences and going and seeing presenters face-to-face. Uh-huh. Can you just talk a little bit about the, the approach for the, the marketing, how important it is maybe to, be, uh, to serve on panels?
5: Getting your message out, I mean, just the same way that you all as presenters have to get your messaging out to your audiences, you know, it's a very similar thing. My audience is not the end audience. My audience is the Performing Arts Center right it's the venue and so the way that i look at my marketing i know people are going away from paper but i create a booklet right and it's a booklet with my with my artists and the point is that the way that it's laid out is very similar to what maybe one of your all programs would look like none of us have as much time as we want so my goal is to present my artists in a way that it takes very little for the presenter to imagine what that would look like in their brochure or in their marketing material. Also, yes, serving on the panels, you know, it's all, again, going back to the relationships, putting yourself in a position where people get to know you better. They get to know who you are as a person, not only as a professional. You know, you're going to buy something from someone that you know and that you trust more than taking a chance on somebody that you don't know and you don't trust. And of course, then that begs the question for people who are new into the industry, then how do they break in? Presenters may not respond to an email from somebody. They might not even respond to a phone call, you know, because again, every all of us are so busy and don't have as much time as we need or that we would want. So the conferences and that face-to-face time, serving on panels, getting involved in, you know, like PA presenters or in like the state consortiums. The state consortiums that allow agents to be a part of them right i think that's a really good way to get involved and to get to meet people
1: besides conferences because there's many presenters that don't go to conferences Uh for one reason or another how do you first of all find those presenters and then how do you break that wall of getting through if if all you have is email and phone calls
5: first of all i think it all it all comes down to your artists you know if you're representing an artist uh, some of the homework that I do and many agents do is you look at uh, similar artists or artists that might play in like the same slot as the artist you're repping, and you have to start developing your hit lists. Right. So if there, if a presenter has had an artist similar to you, your artist, you can mention that, and because you have to do your homework. You know, you have to do your homework. And another way of doing it is also like road trips and going to the venue in person and uh, making yourself available again, and that person to person. But this also kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, one of your previous questions was, how does it, what is the difference between working for some of these larger agencies where they divide agents into not only regions, but also um, genres. And then now being the co-owner of my own agency, my own boutique agency, um, that is part of the learning curve, you know, saying, okay, let me focus, like not feeling that pressure to deliver a cross country tour for every single one of my artists, because I'm one person and I can't do that, but really honing in and focusing, okay where geographically will each artist go in a season and really being specific about it and working with them, the artists, on that specificity.
1: Leah, I have a time machine. I want to bring you back on it. And and we're going to head to Denver, Colorado to see young Leah, who's about to get on the airplane and go to Spain for the first time. Uh, I'm going to give you a minute or two to just maybe tell her a little bit of advice for her future or some kind of motivational thing or, or something that she needs to know at that time.
5: Ask more questions. Ask questions when you don't understand things. I think also um, be open to different mentors that come into your life. I mean, I was 16 when I went to Spain my first time. I I went there for my junior year of high school. So I, I think that mentors are a really important part of any... Uh, industry, and especially an industry like ours where there is not a direct line to an end game. You know, so many of us have come to this industry through different ways, whether we were performers or not. You know, maybe some of us just landed in it. There's no clear path. So I would say just ask questions, ask more questions than you think you should. Yes.
1: Uh, Our time is just about up, but I want to know, is there anything we missed? Is there any kind of wisdom or advice or something from your experiences to kind of impart to somebody who may be looking to become uh, an agent or become a producer?
5: I think it really is, you know, go with your gut. One of my former bosses told me once, Leah, your problem is that you have impeccable taste. Go back to that comment. And it's like, okay, was that? an insult or was that a compliment? And I've embraced it because I I feel like with the roster that I have right now, I can really stand behind every single one of those artists because I do have impeccable taste. And I do feel that in my gut, I know, I feel like I, I have an intuition of what, of the type of artists that should be on our stages. And I'm proud to champion those artists and connect them with audiences.
1: Thank you, Lee. I always ask this as the last question. What do you like most about working in the industry today?
5: It's the colleagues. We've all been through so much. And after everything that we've been through, I think it's become very easy to separate the ones who are real, who are the real ones and and the ones who, you know, maybe you're not quite on the same wavelength with so and having the opportunity to see those colleagues and work with them to again bring amazing artists to these stages and to audiences across the country that's one of the things that I love about this industry and being able to shape what's on stages across the country it's something I'm very proud of
1: Leah I really enjoyed talking to you today thanks for joining us
5: Thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate it.
3: Brian, love this conversation that you had with Leah. I love her intentionality around her work and really enjoyed learning about her path from being a professional dancer and then moving into the agency side. I appreciate so much when folks that we know have kind of both sides of the coin. They've had experience in one side and then that translates so well into Leah's case, supporting artists and being a creative producer on top of being an agent. And so I loved learning more about her path. And I didn't, I personally didn't know she was a flamenco dancer before she became an agent. So I learned something new. Um, And yeah, I love that kind of duality of like artist and agent in one person.
1: No, I didn't know she was a dancer either until she came here with her show, uh, Tabla Flamenco. And uh, at the end, at the very end of that performance, they did kind of a encore and she came out and and did some flamenco dancing for the audience it was a lot of fun to watch and then i talked with her afterwards and that's when she explained she used to be a professional flamenco dancer so uh yeah i didn't know that either
4: i love her story that in the pandemic that the agency that she was working for closed but then with her husband took the initiative to start something new and and to to birth a business focused on representing artists Um, And adapting an existing entity into that during the pandemic and saying, you know what, I'm just going to take this leap and I'm going to work for myself and I'm going to do it my way from this point forward. Um, And and I love that she had the the confidence and the initiative to take that jump and make that jump and and move forward with that.
0: And it's so great to hear a story from the pandemic that was successful and survived and turned into something um you know during that time we were all sort of trying to figure it out and there was so much uncertainty and i love lifting up stories that that time really did have a positive
1: effect
2: brian i really appreciate the conversation uh, surrounding the finances of a lot of things um, because it really made my my nerdy accountant brain very happy um and you know just also realizing that leah was able to sort of you know, shrink that down into what is a very manageable thing, not getting into the minutia of like how quite complicated some of this can be and how ever changing it is just as, you know, gas prices change, cost of train or like uh, plane travel changes. And so that like being able to like be very succinct on that was was really nice to hear. And uh, the other thing I was really surprised about was talking about the um, the commission based versus salary based of, of agents. And I was actually pleasantly surprised to hear that she was salaried. Too, because I just too. I've always assumed that most agents were were commission based. And that's Same. that's that's tough. And her her reasoning behind like why they wouldn't want to do that is makes perfect sense and really, I mean honestly I think is 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 rather smart. Um
1: yeah, I love that approach and I loved learning about that too. That was a new piece of information for me as well.
2: The conversation that leah was having about relationship building in the industry and sort of having that ability to be very transparent and honest with with those that you're close with um really brings to light the 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 negotiation side of things um you know and you know focusing you know letting people know that yeah if you can do mondays and tuesdays like yeah we can we can work a deal um if you have that market great um but also that on the flip side of that is like, if you don't, like you do have to pay more because you're getting essentially prime real estate there. Um, and I, I just love that, that idea of being able to have like a transparent negotiation, just saying like, look, um, we can, we can come in for this, um, uh, because this is what we need to make in a week. Uh, and, and I think for, for me, just because I'm a very transparent person, um, I don't want to like try to nickel and dime and try to try to do that. I'd much rather you come to me and say, we can do it for this and be able to go, okay, like, that that works for us, or on vice versa. Going, I've got X to spend.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated the detail that she went into, especially when it comes to producing work for the road, um, new work, and remounting work for the road. Because you can't just sort of pull out what you did last time and do it again. When she was talking about difference in transportation, I mean, I don't love hearing that they're. It sounds like they're going to be less comfortable on the road because gas prices have gone up. You know, like that sucks, and you know. The way that Leah speaks is so eloquent and so intentional, and I think that she's a wonderful person to talk with about all of this, but I felt like that way of presenting kind of covered up the incredible risk that they take, and I've always known that there was risk in producing work, but you know, on our side of the business, we don't always see that incredible amount of risk. And I think when we're negotiating, we do need to take into account the risk and all of the other things that could go wrong.
3: And I think that transparency has only grown since the pandemic. I, in talking with agents, I hear way more conversation. I think we probably all hear way more conversation about that weekly nut. And this is what I need to make. And I'm routed here and here. And you know, this is how the money is playing out. Like I've had more of those conversations in the last 18 months in that very transparent way than I ever did
2: pre-pandemic. At this point, like, it's pretty rare that I talk to an agent, but from what I'm hearing, like we're having those conversations with agents that we have those relationships with, but not necessarily new people. So I'd be be curious to know if that's That's exactly where I was going to go was that
4: my experience is that with with experienced agents that have been in the industry, at this point, they're very transparent and clear about what changes they're facing and what they're facing within their tour and what that looks like. But on the much more commercial end of it, where there's tons of new agents out there and I'm dealing with new agents, those new agents are not transparent in any way. And I find myself trying to reach to, to get a little bit more from them and to know a little bit more about, hey, wh- where do I need to be? offer wise to fit into your tour and, and I'm getting, you know, blanket zero response, you know, they're responding, but they are responding with, this is what they've been getting. And that's not true in all cases, but overall, generally that's, that's the difference. Whereas on the cultural and more art end of the spectrum within presenting, there is a lot more of that conversation on transparency about getting out and, and, and getting it there because it's, On the commercial end, it it really is only about the money.
3: I really appreciated the conversation about the roster for Rhythm of the Arts and the diversity of artists and how Leah thinks specifically about curating those artists, um, laying out her marketing materials, and that kind of like the idea of making it easy for a presenter to see, like, this is how it's going to look in my brochure and that sort of thing, taking some of the guesswork out of that. Uh, I thought that was a really great conversation.
4: I love the intentionality of her roster, Um, specifically speaking to the intention of it um, that represents exactly what she's passionate about. Uh, and so I really appreciate that. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more depth to it. And, and I think she speaks to that really well in the interview.
2: Yeah. Shout out to her for seeing a need and having a vision and following it and executing on that. And I, I love agents like Leah because she believes in everything that's on her roster. Um, so it never feels like she's pitching or selling. Like She's just really advocating for the artist because she she knows that they have a solid product.
0: Just one other thing that I, you know, I wanted to bring back around that she said in this is that she's proud of being able to shape what's on the stages around the country. And I just think that that's such a 50,000-foot view of what it is that we all do that really is incredible and whenever you get so bogged down in the details, you forget about the big picture things and the way that this work we are doing does affect people's lives, and a lot of ways we don't see it. But just thinking of like your work as shaping an experience that people have everywhere is, in a way, a lot to bear. But at the same time, like it's amazing that we get to do this.
4: One thing that I, I loved in the interview is that uh, whenever Garba three sixty was mentioned, she immediately gave credit. To who the producer and the creative force behind that was, and that she was very intentional about making sure that the right person, Hina Patel, was getting the credit for the work that was done from a producing standpoint. And, And I just respect that a lot in how transparent she was and in turn, uplifting Uh, another female creator in that process by making sure that she got the credit that she was due.
3: Yeah, Josh, you mentioned, you know, crediting another female producer. I just have to give Leah a lot of credit. Um, I don't have a long relationship with her, but we've started to do a little bit of work together. And I am just constantly impressed by what a strong presence she has made herself in the industry. And she has, I just think of her as a force of nature and as a woman in the industry that, has to navigate, um, a lot of different ways of existing. Um, I really admire her. She doesn't really pull punches. She's very straightforward and transparent, um, at least in my experience. And so I just wanted, and I think that comes across in the conversation you had with her, Brian. So just really want to give her credit and recognize that she has made herself a force. To be reckoned with in the industry. And I think it's important to recognize that as well.
1: I enjoyed speaking with Leah in this conversation, and um, I've, I've had the honor of getting to work with her multiple times at different venues. And and in fact, I'll be doing that again this coming fall. I've got Sugar Skull booked, and I'm really excited about that show. I want to thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you guys join us next week for our next episode. Until then, have a great week.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zellmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vano. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at NoBusinessLife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus iness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends.
1: Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> Please don't leave. (laughs) Just stay with us, please. Um, I don't know that we're going to have any outs, we, we want you to, to, you know what I, before I leave, I just want to, before we depart, I just want to ask you guys, have we done something wrong? Danielle has asked end of every single episode. She says, make sure you like and subscribe and send us some messages and nobody's talking to us. You know, come on, ring that bell or whatever they say. They don't say that anymore. That's on YouTube, right? <laughs> ring that bell. <laughs> and they would know. point. You don't know. What? It's just my
4: kids' videos. <laughs> I, I mean, I know smash the like button, but that's. I,
1: I don't know what either of those things mean.
4: Anyway. <laughs> Thanks for
1: joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh, we're still doing this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do I have it somewhere in there that I can edit it from? Uh, I don't.
2: Yeah, know. you you definitely do. Okay. I think you've got eight of them. <laughs> just the outtakes are going to be seven minutes. I think. Just I think. Really, that's how we need to end, end every episode. Are we still doing this? <laughs>